It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration makes the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. Amy, I can't believe we're at episode 67. I know. Crazy. I can't believe it either. Anything fun and exciting last week for you? We're still playing catch up with her. No. no. You know, not much. Just kind of trucking along life, <laughs> busy with the, you know, getting the kids stuff. Yeah. Youngest one's doing basketball and yeah. practice and all that stuff. So, okay. just um, busy. And we should note that we still are working separately for through the podcast here. Hopefully next week we'll be back to normal. But if it sounds kind of funny, it's because we're in separate homes. So it's all good. But just keeping everybody healthy. Everyone's heard about Amelia Earhart, Charles Lindbergh, and the Wright Brothers. All of these people have been trailblazers in flying. But not many people know of Bessie Coleman, which someday I do want to do a long on. Have you heard of Bessie Coleman? I have not, no. Born in Atlanta, Texas on January 26, 1892, Bessie's mother was black and her father was mixed race, both Native American and black. Her father worked as a sharecropper and her mother worked as a maid. Bessie grew up picking cotton in Texas and doing laundry for extra money. She was one of 12 children. She had to work for everything as... I can't wow, imagine. That's a big, yeah, yeah, big family. family. She eventually earned enough money to attend an agricultural school for, I'm saying air quotes, colored people in Oklahoma, but did not graduate because she couldn't keep up with the expenses, which sad reality of the time. When she was 23, she moved to Chicago to live with some of her brothers, went to school to be a manicurist at a local barber shop just before World War I. Her brother she was living with had served in the war and was stationed in France. They came home with stories about the war, and one story struck a chord with Bessie. Her brothers mentioned that in France, women could be pilots. Bessie was fascinated with the idea and began applying to flight schools around the United States. She was turned down at every school, either because she was a woman or she was black, not to mention she was a black woman. So, wow, yeah. Uh, yeah. The cards were stacked against her, really, unfortunately. Early on, yeah. Somehow her plight came to the attention of Robert Abbott, who was a famous African-American newspaper publisher. He suggested that she should move to France, where she could learn to fly. That's sad that they were so far ahead of us as far as, you know, being more progressive. Right. with European. Yeah. Yeah. Since her applications needed to be in French, she started taking night classes to learn how to speak and write in French. She was accepted into the Caudron Brothers School of Aviation in France and received her pilot's license in June of 1921. Not only did she learn to fly, she became a talented stunt pilot. Can you imagine? Oh, wow. (sighs) Scary, but she could do crazy tricks. Her wish was to start her own school and and own her own planes. She started giving speeches and showing films of her stunts in churches, theaters, and schools to earn money. She became famous for loop-de-loops and figure-eights. She became popular in both America and Europe and did her first show in 1922. It was the first public flight by a black woman. When choosing her audience, she refused to speak or perform anywhere 
audiences were racially segregated, which I love that. She encouraged other black women to learn to fly. Two years into her career, her airplane engine stopped working and she crashed, breaking a leg, cracking a few ribs, and she had cuts on her face. An experience like that might stop people, but not for Coleman. She went back to doing stunts and dangerous tricks. In 1925, eventually she was able to buy her own plane. She went to her hometown in Texas and was scheduled to perform for a large crowd. As Texas was still segregated, the stadium managers were going to require blacks and whites to use separate entrances, saying that with rage, and seats, seat them Wow. Separately. She refused to perform unless everybody could come through the same entrance. Under Texas law, segregated seating was still required. So even though the audience could not sit together, she agreed to perform. On April 30th, 1926, Bessie Coleman was making a test flight with a mechanic. The mechanic was flying the plane, and Bessie was in the passenger seat. When the plane was at 3,000 feet, a loose wrench somehow got stuck in the engine, and the pilot lost control, flipping the plane and throwing Bessie out of the plane to her death. Bessie Coleman was a pioneer for both women and minorities, breaking barriers in flight, which was almost exclusively male and white. She had an enormous funeral. And at every year since 1931, the Challengers Pilot Association makes their traditional flight over her grave. In 1977, Aww, I, I know. That. So she's definitely remembered. In 1977, yeah. a group of black female pilots started the Bessie Coleman Aviators Club. And in 1995, she was commemorated on a U.S. postage stamp. Bessie Coleman was all kinds of grit and determination. She was brave, adventurous, and stood up for what she believed in. I just admire this woman so much. It's sad that she had to go to France in order to make it happen, but shows you what she was willing to do, what she had to do to make it happen. Right. The gumption, for sure. The girl power. Exactly. Just want to make sure everyone knows that when we're talking about Ida B. Wells, it is a pretty hard topic, definitely for a mature audience. So if you have kids, this might not be the episode or maybe talk to them later, but just a little warning that it's it's a hard discussion here. Ida B. Wells didn't like to cook much. So she I left that. To that. <laughs> exactly. So she left that to her husband. And I guess he was pretty good at it. So I thought Amy would like that because it could relate to that. Ida B. Wells was a petite lady, something both of us can relate to. Besides her love of writing, really don't have much in common with this revolutionary woman. Sadly, I'm I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even know who Ida B. Wells was. And as I've chatted with people, I've discovered I'm definitely not alone. Although I did as soon as me, I... Me too. And I'm excited to hear about yeah, her because I don't know. Well, um, now that I have read about her, I saw she's got a new... Bar- Barbie's made a new Ida B. Wells Barbie doll. So I can get behind Barbie. That's awesome. Um, so now I'm noticing her places, but I hadn't, I hadn't heard of her before. But I came across this book at the library that totally caught my attention. The Bright Colors... And the title, Ida B. the Queen, The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells. So I think the book was intended for, well, I know the book was intended for a younger audience, but it pulled me in all the same. The author was actually related to Ida B. Wells. It's written by Michelle Duster, her great-granddaughter. Interestingly, her parents didn't talk a lot about Ida. 
mainly because they felt that Ida's accomplishments were just that. They were Ida's accomplishments. While they were proud of her and her efforts and her her achievements, they were her accomplishments. So the family right. had, you know, her picture on the wall, but it sounds like they didn't talk about her a whole lot, which is, I think, kind of sad. She said yeah. it wasn't, the author said it wasn't until her mid-30s that she became curious about her grandmother. While she saw most of her college friends getting jobs, getting married, starting families, she had different ambitions and she knew she was just different. And um, it wasn't until she was working on a project that she wanted to start to research a little bit more about her family. And it's then that she discovered she kind of had a lot of similarities with her great-grandmother. Unfortunately, her grandmother had died while she was in college. So a lot of the research would have to be done from journals and just stories passed down, passed down, passed down. So for the author, she realized that her grandmother's generation was gone and her father's generation was also fading. So time was running out to share the story of this woman who refused to conform Ida was born into slavery in 1862. Her parents, Elizabeth and James, were slaves, which meant that Ida was too. Fortunately, on January 1st, 1863, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and at a little less than six months old, Ida was no longer a slave. The war between the North and the South wouldn't be over until 1865, and the reconstruction of the South was between 1865 and 1877. Definitely an exciting time for sure for the United States, but just ending slavery was only the beginning. And the repercussions, you know, we know are still with us today in 2022. So, I guess in December 1865, they had the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery. Then in 1868, they um, amended the Constitution again to give freed slaves the right to citizenship. Then finally, in February of 1870, they amended it the 15th time to grant black men the right to vote. So Ida's story was a hard one for me to take in. I loved that she was the first female probation officer in Chicago because, you know, I'm all over the girl power. I admire that she went to work at 16 to support her family, to do everything she could just to keep them together. Those aren't what made... Ida famous, those things. Ida was an early investigative journalist before it was even such a thing. Ladies of her time, when they were writing for magazines and whatnot, they were writing about marriage and kids and recipes and things related to taking care of the house. Ida was writing about lynching. Lynching goes back to the... The Heavy stuff. Yes, very heavy stuff and definitely not fun to write about, but she felt it necessary Groundbreaking. Yes, for sure. I guess lynching goes back to the Revolutionary War. It was a practice named after Colonel Charles Lynch, and it was a means to punish people who were loyal to England. So can you imagine having that be your namesake? (laughs) I remember going to a museum at the coast as part of the Goonies tour. Have you ever done that? I've never done that. Oh my that. gosh, it's fun. Yeah. We should go do it. In Astoria, there's like a whole section yeah. of Goonies stuff to go do in Seaside too. But anyway, this museum in Astoria had previously been a jail. And in one of the rooms, there were pictures of hangings. The hangings obviously bothered me. But the most disturbing part about them were the number of people who showed up to watch. Like a movie or mm-hmm. a television show. Right. 
I read that day that families would pack picnic lunches in preparation and make a day of it. I just, morbid. I'm sure Ida would have preferred to write about anything else, but the fact of the matter was that the practice needed to be out in the open. I'm sure she'd rather write about fluffy women's issues, but she wanted to expose how badly African-Americans were treated in the South. And just like we didn't know about a lot of this stuff, I mean, they definitely didn't know about it back then. So as hard as it is to read and comprehend, I just think it's so important as a reminder that we need to do better. I spoke with a man at work, this was um, late last year, who told me that we don't have racism in America. We no longer have slaves. So how could we have racism? That was an actual rhetorical question that he said to me in 2021. Just wow. So I hated seeing pictures of hounds used to hunt humans and all the gore involved in this book. But maybe if more of that were exposed, fewer of us would question racism. When they were freed, the vast majority of them didn't know how to read. After all, it was against the law to teach a slave to read. Because of the slave trade, families were separated and sold. It was a harsh reality I hadn't really thought about. We all agree slavery was an ugly part of our American history. I just wish more of us could agree to give our fellow humans some grace and compassion. Even among the black leaders, they disagreed with how to approach the whole equality problem. Frederick Douglass was old enough to be Ida's grandpa, but admired her drive, her voice, and her fearlessness. While they would disagree with strategy, they still wanted the same outcome. And in the end, much like all of us, if we just take a step back, plenty of people were mad at Frederick Douglass, too. He had a white wife and an interracial marriage was taboo. Booker T. Washington wanted blacks to work on getting an education. He felt that the best way to be seen as equals in America was to get an education and get a good job. Right. He was fine with segregation as long as they were allowed to have the same opportunities. A peaceful, quiet justice warrior, whereas Ida was much more outspoken. All of them clearly having a place in America's black history. I'm hopeful that one day we can just label it under American history because that's exactly what it is. But as ugly as it was, it's part of our history. And the sooner we can accept that, the sooner we can all learn from it and be better. Right, exactly. As I noted, Ida was born into slavery but was a baby when it was declared illegal. Her parents had been relatively lucky as far as slaves are concerned. Their owners treated them well, considering... Her father did carpentry work for their owner, and Ida's mother was a cook. So they didn't come and they didn't obviously get to come and go as they chose, but they weren't out on the fields breaking their backs, picking cotton in the sun like so many others. After slavery was abolished, her parents continued working for the same family. They just earned money now. They could come and go as they pleased. Well, they worked for them for a time. His boss wanted him to vote for someone who was opposed to previous slaves having rights. So when his boss found out that he had voted for the opponent, someone he didn't want him to vote for, he locked up the woodshed and fired him. So, you know, he's out of a job. They landed on their feet, though, considering, and Ida loved to read the paper to her dad. I think she also went through the Bible a couple of times. When she was a little girl, her mother would go to class with her to learn to read the Bible. That's why she wanted to learn to read. Isn't that cute? Her parents were hard workers and good people. One summer in 1878, Ida went to visit her grandma. Yellow fever was sweeping 
through Tennessee, and some people had traveled from Memphis to Holly Springs, and Ida's parents tried to help where they could. In the end, Ida got a letter while she was at her grandma's that her parents had died within 24 hours of each other from yellow fever. So at 16, as I said, she was thrown into adulthood. She returned to Holly Springs to find out that a brother had also perished from yellow fever. And they were talking about splitting up the kids and finding new homes for them. Ida said her parents would be devastated if they knew of the plan. She wanted to keep the family together. So at 16, she studied for the teaching exam, let out her hem in her dress, put her hair up in a high bun so she was trying to look older. She passed the teaching. I know, it's very cute. She passed the teaching exam, got a job teaching in a rural town where she'd leave on Sunday night, come back Friday night. She'd have to stay with families and students during the week. She rode a mule to and from. (laughs) And she needed help, you know, with, from the family so that from relatives so that her family could stay intact, but she made it happen. She'd return on the weekends and catch up with the household duties on her days off. She took a job teaching at a school North of, Memphis, and she would take the later would take the train instead of a mule, which I guess was a step up. Unfortunately, the Jim Crow laws had been passed through areas of the South. Jim Crow was a character in the 1820s and 1830s who was dressed shabbily, appeared lazy, not to mention he used burnt cork to color his face black in blackface. Aww. Huge step back. To say the least, one day a conductor asked Ida, because they were, you know, traveling through different sections, one day a conductor asked her to move to the colored section of the train. It was also the smoking section, so people could smoke, swear, and do whatever they wanted in the cabin. When Ida refused, the conductor went to grab her, and she bit him. (laughs) So I, I, I just... You got a little bit of fight. Yeah. Feisty little one. By the time she got home, her duster was ripped and she was shaken up. But she knew her dad would have been very proud of her for standing up for herself. She had purchased a ticket to sit with everyone in the front, not a lower class ticket to sit back in the smoking section. So a few months later, the same thing happened. A conductor asked her to move to the colored section in another cabin. When she refused, she got off the train and found a lawyer to sue the railroad. After all, she had purchased a first-class ticket, and they had refused to provide her service. Sadly, the black attorney was bought out by the railroad, so once again, she found another attorney. She found a white man named James Greer, who apparently got the job done. On Christmas Day in 1884, Ida read in the Memphis Daily Avalanche that she won the case and was to be awarded $500. Unfortunately. That's really impressive. I know. You know, when you think about the time... And you think about, well, you know, I think that's really impressive. Well, I think it's exciting. So many ups and downs, ups and downs, because the Chesapeake, Ohio, Southwestern Railroad appealed the case. Two years later, it was overturned at the Supreme Court. They said Ida was responsible for court fees and owed them $200. So for Ida, it was was clear that the system wasn't going to offer justice. So she would turn her sights to the press. She actually started off with a pen name of Iola, only because someone had misread her name. And she kind of liked it, which I think is cute. She wrote about her experience with the railroad in Living Way. That was um, one of the names of the papers. Her list of work is long, and it's easy to see why she became known as the Princess of the Press. In 1889, Free Speech and Headlight, a local newspaper, invited her on. She agreed only if she could be part owner 
I just love that too. Oh, that's Confidence. so forward thinking. Yes. I mean, who would even thought that? And very bold. Very yeah, confident. good for her. They agreed, and she scrounged up enough money to be one-third owner and editor. Pretty big deal, especially for the time. Yeah. She really had to make the writing thing work out since she had been fired from her teaching position. It seems that people didn't like her articles discussing the poor conditions for black children in school with inadequate everything. So since they didn't like it, they fired her. So she'd take the train to sell subscriptions from Mississippi, Arkansas, and Tennessee, it definitely helped with sales. In one year, they went from 1,500 subscriptions to 4,000 subscriptions. Wow. It was on one such trip that she heard about a terrible lynching in her hometown. It was actually a friend of Ida B. Wills. Thomas Moss was a letter carrier, and when she lived um, back in the same town, he had often given her the inside scoop since he knew everything that was going on around town. He and two other black men, Calvin McDowell and Henry Stewart, opened the People's Grocery, a general market. The store was successful, which became a problem in itself, especially with William Barrett, the white guy across the street, who also had a market. The People's Grocery took business from him, even though the stores were in a predominantly black area of town. Tensions were high just all the time, but one day some kids outside got into a disagreement over a marble game and a fight broke out. A fight that the dads got involved with, and I guess... Barrett really wanted to just get these three black men arrested. And when they didn't get arrested over that, he continued to gossip about the men and and just tried to tell people that these three guys were trying to take over and destroy the town. The sheriff deputized ordinary citizens to storm the people's grocery in plain clothing. And when Moss, McDowell, and Stewart defended their store from would-be robbers, I mean, these guys just looked like robbers, they twisted the story. When a white man was shot, law enforcement was concerned for the safety of the three men behind bars. So these three guys are arrested. And for two days, the Tennessee Rifles, the black militia, kind of like the National Guard, stood guard in front of their cells. But on the third night, when they found out that the white man was going to live, they determined they didn't need to protect the men in the cells. So they left. The three men never got to testify in court. After it was declared the white man, the white man would live, the officers thought the three men would be safe, and they left them. Tragic and deadly decision. A white mob broke in, kidnapped the three men, and took them to the outskirts of town. They were tortured before they were killed. Eyes gouged, yes. fingers shot off. Ida's friend Moss would beg for his life for the sake of his wife, daughter, and unborn child. Oh Keep my in God. mind, I know, I just, these are humans doing this to other right. humans. I. Yeah. Keep in mind, the only thing these men were guilty of was trying to protect their store from robbers, their property. Before they shot them, Thomas Moss said, tell my people to go west. There is no justice for them here. Ida encouraged people to save their money and leave town, and they felt it with businesses hurting. One of the first boycotts, which totally reminded me of your episode three with John Lewis. So this was even oh, yeah. before. And Ida right. was reporting all the violence that ensued. She was traveling north to visit T. Thomas Fortune, editor of a black newspaper called New York Age. When she arrived in Jersey City, he shared the news coming from Memphis. And an Memphis was where Ida B. had been stationed, had been writing. An angry mob had broken into her office at Free Speech looking 
likely for Ida. They destroyed her printing press and left her a threat. It was a good thing she wasn't in her office that night or she likely would have been lynched as well. Frederick Douglass liked her work and suggested she write a longer pamphlet. She wrote Southern Horrors, Lynch Laws in All Its Phases. She paid for it with speaking engagements in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C. Ida would try to save up money to take lessons on public speaking, which apparently paid off. In 1893, she was invited to England and Scotland for an anti-lynching campaign. When she was interviewed for a paper overseas, she said, Freedom is mocked in a country that boasts herself the freest in the world. Which I thought was very interesting. She returned and headed to Chicago to work with the black leaders at the World Fair. They were celebrating the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's voyage to the New World. She was disgusted that they were celebrating all sorts of cultures around the world at the expo, but not African-Americans. Once again, she butted heads with other civil rights leaders. Some called her a hothead, and others called her a bull in a china shop with her approach. Sometimes people booed her, but that didn't stop her. Her and Frederick Douglass wrote an 81-page pamphlet, which is a book in my world, (laughs) but an 81-page pamphlet. For the World Fair, noting how blacks had contributed to society with science, business, music, and art. Ferdinand Barnett was a black lawyer, and he had been another reason that Ida had moved to Mem- moved out of Memphis and to Chicago. He offered her a part-time job at the Conservator and proposed, three times to be exact, before Ida finally agreed. Aww. I know, isn't that cute? They were married on June 27, 1895. Ida was almost 33 so this is a time that's, that that that's be, old. I, I know. That's old for the time. <laughs> it's young. She would be but, a Spencer. A Spencer. I know. Spencer. Um, exactly. So she was almost 33. She became an instant stepmother to Ferdinand 10 and Albert, who was eight. He had um, lost his first wife. Not only do I admire that this woman waited until the time was ripe for her to get married. She didn't, you know, listen to social norms. She ignored social expectations. But she also kept her last name before it was even a thing. So she hyphenated it. She became Ida B. Wells. I know. She's a groundbreaking woman. She in all sorts of areas. So the following year, they had their first son. That same year, 1896, she co-founded the National Association of Colored Women with Mary Church Terrell, Harriet Tubman, and Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin. Later, the name was changed to National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. The following but year, that's, a, that's a heavy hit, isn't it? I mean, to be associated with that, it's I, pretty cool. I know, and they're just such, it's a mouthful. It's hard to a lot of I, I'm. I don't know who this marriage is. Yeah, I just need to keep digging with some of these people. But the following year, they had another son, and Ida started for the first kindergarten in Chicago for black children. So, so many firsts that this woman just wow. saw the need yeah. and, and went and did it. I can't imagine the tug in each direction this mom must have felt. She had her own children to consider. But at the same time, she felt this responsibility to share the stories of all these victims out there. Lynching. Wow, so amazing. She definitely was. And more people need to know about her. Lynching um, definitely decreased with every article Ida wrote, but there still was a lot of work to be done. After a postmaster and his infant son 
were murdered in Lake City, South Carolina. Ida, who was part of an anti-lynching group, she was involved in so many groups and wrote for so many papers, and it just makes your head spin to see all that she did. But she traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet with William McKinley, the 20th president. McKinley agreed that whoever had killed Frazier Baker and his infant son needed to be arrested. After all, he was an employee of the U.S. government. Ida pushed for McKinley to treat lynching as a federal crime, but instead he promised to hunt down the people responsible for this particular crime. Unfortunately, he became distracted with the Spanish-American War, and sadly, he didn't uphold his promise. So, in 1908, Ida started the Negro Fellowship League. It was an extension of her Bible study group, so a lot of the students would help. She based it somewhat from the whole house in Chicago run by Jane Addams, It was a place where people in need could come for food, housing, and educational material. Side note, Jane Hall would help um, pressure the the Chicago Tribune to stop calling for segregation. The first year of the Negro Fellowship League, she helped 115 men find jobs. The house provided a library, hot meals, and help finding employment. They would later move to an actual building that cost the Barnetts $150 a month, which is how she became Chicago's first female parole officer. She was trying to make ends meet. I know. This woman, she just wanted to make it happen, so took on another job. She would be at the courthouse from 9 to 12. Then she would check on 85 men that were on probation, followed with helping at the Negro Fellowship League. I'm just not sure how this woman fit it all in. Ten years. Oh my gosh, they kept, I'm feeling guilty. I know. <laughs> they didn't have, yeah. Some things were easier and then some things so not. But they kept the Negro Fellowship League open for 10 years purely with Ida's sheer grit. They had to close in 1920, but it was in the decade that it was open, they helped a thousand men find jobs and they gave people, you know, a place to stay. In well, that's ni- awesome. I know. In 1909, there was a poor black man named Will James, who was known as Frog. He was accused of killing a white woman found in an alley in Cairo, Illinois. The sheriff allowed a mob to take the prisoner without due process of the law. He was hung from an electric pole, riddled with hundreds of bullets, and then they decapitated the body. Ida traveled to Cairo to get more of the story, but the sheriff was obligated to protect inmates from a mob and obviously davis had not done this there was talk that the sheriff would be reinstated which was absolutely legal if the governor allowed it was some loophole in in the law so i just spoke with the scared townspeople they were worried that was going to happen and she testified in court that the sheriff had knowingly released will james to his assured death governor charles deenan agreed not thank goodness, to reinstate the sheriff and even used Ida's words about his removal. Mob violence has no place in Illinois. So I love that. Mm. Yeah. Add to the equation her work with the Alpha Suffrage Club that started in January of 1913, a group she co-founded. Another another group she founded. The club sent Ida to Washington for the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson in March of 1913. A march, they were planning the March for Women's Rights, where 5,000 women demonstrated they wanted the right to vote. When Ida showed up for the march, the ladies welcomed her and then promptly asked her to march in the back, so as not to upset the white people. Two ladies, Virginia Brooks and Belle Squire, offered to march with her in the back. But when they arrived for the march the next day, Ida couldn't be found. 
She had joined. (laughs) I love this. She had joined the Illinois delegates, and she was marching front and center with that group. So, you go. That's awesome. (laughs) Poet and suffragist Betty Ola Forson would say that Ida was the queen of our race in celebration of Ida's refusal to be pushed back. Ida wrote an entire pamphlet titled The Arkansas Race Riot. It talked about a group of sharecroppers in Elaine, Arkansas, who tried to form a union in 1919. They wanted fair compensation for their crops, but they were met with violence and, you know, dozens of deaths and extensive destruction of property left in the wake. Twelve men were in prison in the aftermath. They had been beaten, tortured until they confessed. Her pamphlet drew attention, and eventually all of the men were released after the case went to the Supreme Court. This was the one who her son talked her into going to help. All 12 judges agreed that the men were, un- all 12 of the judges, I want to repeat, wow. agreed that the men were unfairly tried and convicted, and they overturned their death sentences. So thank goodness she wrote about that and got attention to that so that sure, yeah, for it would sure. be turned around. In 1919, Ida and C.J. Walker were invited to the Paris Peace Conference in France. Both women were denied passports and unable to attend. Denied passports. Ida had a reputation as a Negro agitator, and she was on the FBI list. One day, she had been in the Negro Fellowship League, and a white man had asked her about some pins. So let me back up, and it'll make sense. There was a that woman has some moxie. I just have to say that. My gosh, and yeah, in spades for sure. There was a predominantly black army unit sent from New Mexico to guard the construction of Camp Logan that was at the edge of Houston. These men were serving their country, trained to fight for democracy, but at the same time they were, you know, living in a country reality with Jim Crow laws. So while they were willing to die for their country, that same country treated them like second-class citizens. There was a black soldier. He witnessed a white police officer, Lee Sparks, attempting to arrest a black woman on August 23, 1917. When the soldier defended the woman, he was clubbed and arrested. Corporal Charles W. Baltimore inquired about the situation, and an argument ensued. Baltimore was also beaten and eventually detained. The town was buzzing with the situation. And keep in mind, the tensions you know, were high to begin with. Since they saw the black men as a threat, as if them being treated with dignity and respect meant every black person might expect that. I just, I, the whole, yeah, I just can't wrap my head around that because, yeah. Right, yeah. But anyway, the soldiers heard that a white mob was planning to attack their camp. Instead of waiting for it, they grabbed their rifles and headed into downtown. It was a wet and rainy night. In the chaos, Captain J.W. Matz was shot and killed, and ultimately 118 enlisted black soldiers were arrested. 63 of them were charged with mutiny. All of the men were represented by a single lawyer. The soldiers were denied. I know. Um, The soldiers were denied their constitutional rights to due process on November 28th. 1917, five days later, 13 black soldiers were found guilty and sentenced to death, including Corporal Baltimore. Two weeks later, December 11th, they were hanged. A few weeks later, seven more were hanged. Seven were acquitted and the rest received various sentences. The men who had trained to fight for their country were thrown into a mass grave and given numbers 
Even the scaffolding that they were hung on was burned like it never happened. No white person was ever charged or punished. No civilians had any consequences. And for Ida, she wanted this she wanted these men to be remembered. She wanted this story told. Ida wanted to hold a memorial service for the men, but no one would hold it. The pastors were too afraid of repercussions. Keep in mind, church burning was a very real threat. Ida didn't want these men forgotten. She printed up 500 pins to sell and distribute at the um, Negro Fellowship League. So after that white man had asked her about the pins, a couple hours later, two, he, she, she gives him one. A couple hours later, two more men, two more white men come in. I guess it was an area of town that they didn't see a lot of white people. It was kind of a, a hard area. So it was very uncommon okay. to see white men in there. So she knew something was up. The two men were from the government. Long story short, they asked her for the pins, claiming she could be arrested Aww. for treason. Fortunately, she stood her ground because her husband was an attorney. She knew her rights. But the agents threatened the button maker, making it clear that he was never to make those again. But they didn't get the buttons from Ida. She didn't give them any of the 500 buttons. So that, yeah. This trailblazer made her mark on the world, that's for sure. I've only touched on, seriously, a fraction of her life and her accomplishments. I love that her great-granddaughter is sharing her story with a new generation. And I'm just so happy that I happened to come across this book at the library. It's so hard for me to read the things that happened in the country that I love so much. And I think I've avoided some things because they're just so painful. I didn't see them as inspiring or hopeful in the least. But I think if we all learn and grow from those stories and experiences, I won't say it makes it worth it, but, you know, it's a cost of our history. It's part of our history for sure. If Ida B. Wells, a petite little black woman, could buck the system and stand up for what's right, I don't have an excuse. With grit and determination, she fought in her own way to make this country better. And that, I think, is most certainly inspiring. So true. The way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. Ida B. Wells. We met for coffee the other day. Well, maybe a couple weeks ago. <laughs> time <laughs> this is so time fun. just doesn't. We were chatting about our podcast and setting some goals yeah. for 2022, which I still can't believe we're already in the new year. I know. Um, afterwards, I feeling inspired and I did some digging around looking at some volunteer opportunities for us and I came across this really cool nonprofit called uh, PDX Concierge and we love talking about young people doing awesome things well this nonprofit was started by 16 year old uh, Neil Jang uh, back in April 2020 he came up with the idea because his grandmother had asthma Mm. And everyday activities like going to the grocery store were risky for her health and, you know, with the concern of COVID. Mm -hmm. So he began bringing groceries to mitigate her risk, which is really sweet. Um, But then the light bulb went off in him. He realized that there was a real need for this risk-reduced grocery shopping for others in his community. So he decided to start a grocery, a free grocery delivery service for the elderly. That's so sweet. Nonprofit has made uh, 450 deliveries. Good for um, him. What I love most is that it's entirely run by students. 
Neil focused on recruiting young people like himself as a way to provide purpose. Like we're looking for purpose during this time. And he has recruited 50 students so far. And his, his program has expanded to cover Vancouver, Washington, greater Portland area, including Beaverton, Tigers, Lake Oswego, Gresham, Clackamas, and as far south as Eugene and Salem. So, and how it works is someone who wants a delivery owns PDX concierge and a volunteer wears gloves, masks, and does the grocery shopping. And then the volunteer will call 10 minutes prior to the delivery, letting the recipient know to leave the payment outside their door. And it's pretty cute. Neil says sometimes the volunteers even write like a little handwritten note to accompany the groceries just to Aww. let them know that they are there to help. Right. Them, which I think it's super sweet. Yes. Neil, I know. Neil says Neil says it's a way to help encourage the elderly folks to stay safe. I just love I love checking out their website, their photos of the kids and delivering these groceries. It's really darling. I just admire this young man's uh, heart for service. You know, what an awesome way to give back. Give purpose to his peers and also give back to, like, those in need. Well, it's something that anyone um, could do. I heard about another place in Portland also doing a cool stuff um, for those in need. It's the Blanchett House. They've been helping uh, with food, clothing, and shelter for the past 70 years. Um, What is so cool is they're reducing hunger while reducing food waste. And Mm. I didn't know this, but do you know 40% of food waste in America we, I mean, that's how much we waste. It's very uh, Doesn't surprise and me. And Blanket House literally rescues that fresh food and repurposes it into nutritious meals and serves it to the hungry. They receive 30,000 pounds of perfectly good unexpired food from restaurants, grocery stores, and wholesale. 30,000? 30,000 pounds. Oh, my gosh. And one example would... Uh, Mother's Bistro recently donated 500 pounds uh, to Blanchett House because they had it closed due to COVID concerns. Mm-hmm. So impressive. But uh, so in 2020, Blanchett House served 1,500 meals a day. 1,500. The other mm-hmm. awesome thing is they unused food or waste. Um, Blanchett House sent to their farm out in Yamhill to feed animals, which this farm is run by. Um, men struggling with addiction so it's cool they're trying Mm -hmm. to gain sobriety and they're doing this cool stuff with the animals but the animals eat the leftovers so in the end you know all of this animals are notching on this food waste 63 tons of food are out of landfill so that's pretty awesome awesome. i just love that blanchett house is helping those in need and really saving our planet too and we're in in doing something that's really sustainable yeah well and yamhill you just talked about um, yeah. Beverly Cleary um, yeah. and the bells in Yamhill. So now I have another reason that I want to go check out Yamhill. I know. It's beautiful yeah. out there. Cool. Awesome. We may encounter many defeats, but we must not be defeated. Maya Angelou. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.